Hello, friends, and welcome to the Travelers Institute Risk and Resilience Podcast, where we explore issues at the intersection of business, insurance, and public policy, and offer insights and practical advice for both businesses and individuals in today's world of rapidly evolving risk and opportunities. I'm Joan Woodward, president of the Travelers Institute, and I'm thrilled to be with you here today. So what keeps business leaders up at night? That's what the Traveler's Risk Index explores every year. This year, for the ninth straight year, cyber threats were one of the top three business concerns among the 1,200 survey participants from small, medium, and large-sized companies. Of those taking the national survey, 58% said they worry some or great deal about cyber, ranking at just behind medical cost inflation at 60%, and broad economic uncertainty at 59%. Cyber risks have serious consequences. A single attack can significantly weaken an organization or even put it out of business. Fortunately, there are things that you and your organization can do to address vulnerabilities and navigate through a cyber event. On a recent Wednesdays with Woodward webinar, we covered five critical cybersecurity practices that your organization can implement to increase its cyber readiness. Let's take a listen to what we learned. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm Joan Woodward. I'm honored to lead the Travelers Institute, which is the public policy division and educational arm of Travelers. So joining me for today's webinar are two of my favorite cybersecurity experts who also happen to be seasoned veterans of our cyber series. Tim Francis, my friend and colleague, is vice president here and enterprise cyber lead at Travelers. He has oversight over the company's cyber product management, including underwriting strategies, products for businesses of all sizes, public entities, and technology firms. He's also been recognized as one of the industry's foremost experts on cyber issues. So Tim, thanks so much for joining me. Also joined today by Carolyn Perwin Ryan. Carolyn is a partner at the law firm Mullen Coglin. She serves as a breach coach to healthcare institutions, construction companies, municipalities, retail, finance, and so many more. She's also served as a national counsel for several state and federal mass tort litigations, representing clients in the medical and pharmaceutical industries. So really thrilled uh, to have these two experts here today to mark October Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So before we get into the five steps, let's set the stage a little bit with Tim. Let's talk about how do cyber attacks occur? What does a threat actor do to gain access to someone's system? So especially for someone who's not prepared. Sure. And, and I'll start with actually something that happens all the time, which doesn't require threat actors to have access to the system. And that would typically fall into the category of what we might call social engineering. And I'm sure we've all heard that term, maybe unfortunately experience events that deal with social engineering. But it, just as one example, you know, we see frequently with our customers where some business partner of theirs, some vendors that they do business with, for example, might suffer their own cyber attack. And as a result of that, threat actors can gain information that that vendor has and be able to perpetrate, perpetrate fraud against our customers. So in other words, they might hack into one system and understand that our insured or our company owes that particular vendor money. 
and they might know how much money they owe. They might actually be inside that system, be able to send an email that is legitimately coming from that company or purports to be from the right uh, person at that company with the right invoice. And they may simply just say, but our banking and routing information has changed. So instead of wiring that million dollars here, wire it there. And that is very sophisticated. And all you need to do is, you know, hack into one. You don't need to access the other, you know, insured systems to do that. Right. And so that happens all the time. And and our customers need to be diligent about that. But back to kind of the question at hand, we certainly see uh, particularly ransomware, which does require access to the system. And, and really what it requires is access to the system. And there's a variety of different ways in which threat actors can gain access. We'll talk a little bit more. But at the very simplest, once they have access, right, they come in through a virtual door or window, as it were, right? Upon doing that, now they're able to deploy malware, right? And so once they deploy malware, if that is successfully deployed, that will allow them to potentially encrypt all the data and the network. It will allow them to even, if they gain administrative access, essentially gain command and control of the network, right? They are in control. They are in charge. And they can essentially do what with that what they will, right? And so that's the really the most disruptive and financially costly types of events that we see. And we see them all the time because customers haven't done usually one or more of the five basic steps that we're going to talk about more. Okay, great. Thank you, Tim. So Carolyn, for people in our audience who may really have a hard time thinking about cybersecurity issues or haven't looked at it recently, or haven't made it a priority, what, what's at stake here? So why does cyber readiness matter for, for people and organizations today? Absolutely, John. Well, number one, with I always say the ultimate goal is never having to call everybody, right, on, on this call. But what's, what's really important about that is really what do you think about is your business. Everything is at stake is when it comes down to it. So thinking about it from a cyber, like why why would I be worried about it? Uh, you know, I'm a small organization. I'm a medium-sized organization. Why me? Well, I will tell you one of the largest, single largest ones and, and you know, attack uh, ones that are always part of those attack factors are those small and medium-sized businesses, right? Because what a lot of threat actors out there do is they say, you know what, what's well, low-hanging fruit? What are some things that I could do, you know, some of the things that Tim was talking about in order to get in the door? So to me, it's, you know, it, it's not the ones that land in the news all the time, right? It's the ones, the small, the medium organizations, the ones that maybe have the doors open. Some of the things that we're going to be talking about, they, they don't have those implementations or, you know what, they don't have the funds in order to put those, you know, more robust programs and things like that in place. So when it comes to your organization, you I always say to everybody, what's the first question I ask is, well, what kind of data do you have, right? So that's what, you know, because they're, you know, these threat actors, you know, I, I love that Tim, the first thing that he talked about was wire transfer fraud and business email compromise, because those are the single largest things that we're seeing that is out there. Sure, the ransomwares are the ones that get you in the news, but you know what? Business email compromise can sometimes be just as costly to an organization. So think about as an organization, what kind of data that you have and what kind of things that a threat actor might want in order to extort you. Okay, wow. All right. So let's get into it. First of all, we're going to take each one of these five steps and really do a deep dive. So 
we're going to ask our audience a question first, and we love to do audience question polling to get a sense of what you're seeing in your businesses. So the one question, we only have one question today, which one of these steps do you feel least prepared to take? So these are the five we're going to talk about. We're going to go in depth on each, but which one of these steps do you feel least prepared to take in your organization? Give it a couple seconds here, and we're going to get the results to talk about. All right. It is looking like having an incidence response plan and implementing endpoint detection and response are kind of coming in as the top two organizations are least prepared to take. So having that incidence response plan, we're going to talk about this in a minute, would seem to be something every organization should have. Implementing your endpoint detection response is also up there. People are uh, least prepared to take that, but it does look like multi-factor authentication, updating your systems or regular backups, people are seem to be interested in taking. So let's talk about that. So we're going to go one by one, as I said, first, multi-factor authentication. First of all, should I ask Tim and Carolyn, what do you think about these results? of our folks feeling least prepared to have an incident response plan. Carolyn, I'm going to go to you on that. And then maybe Tim, talk for a second about implementing the endpoint detection there that people are worried about taking. Sure. Yeah, you can see me smiling and probably Tim smiling and nodding as well. Um, Because when it comes to incident response plan, one of the first things I'll go in front of, you know, people and talk about, I'll say, do you, do you know what an incident response plan, what actually is it? And people will do the Sure. Like, you know, the half, the half, the uh, the half, you know, uh, I want to say hands up or people will nod along and they might not know what it actually is. And really what it is, is a plan. That, and we're going to talk what those things are and that there are some even just simple ways organizations can put themselves in a better light. Love to see this about the multi-factor authentication being the, one of the last ones that are on there because, and I know that's one of the things that we're going to talk about, but certainly the, inc- you know, the incident response planning and endpoint protection solution being the top is not surprising to me. What about you, Tim? Well, I, th- I think you're exactly right. And I, and I think for any of these, whether it's one of the things you feel most confident about or least confident about, there are resources available and, and we can, we can help you identify those resources. We're going to touch on those things today. We're going to go deep, but it's it's an hour's worth of information. Okay. So take well, advantage of the resources that are available because they're helpful. And I'm very always interested in what the responses are to multi-factor authentication. I think it's phenomenal that people feel confident or uh, with that. But I am glad it's the first thing we're going to talk about, Joan, because what we find is as much as people are confident in our in our experience, often Many of our customers face threats, even though they thought they had MFA or did have MFA, but it wasn't quite configured as well as it could have been. It wasn't in all of the areas of the network that it should have been. And so I think while that's phenomenal to see that be score low here, I think the reality is is that people may be overconfident in how well they've deployed MFA because we see time and time again that being the case. Is using it for an organization's email system enough, for example, Tim? Let's just talk about that right now. So MFA just on your email system, or are there other places uh, that we should be protecting? Well, certainly there's other places. Having it on your email systems, particularly as email more and more is cloud-based. Because email is cloud-based largely, right, that that invites some threats. So I don't want to discount the importance of having MFA on email. 
but it's certainly not enough because there's other ways into the system. And, and, and so particularly when we talk about remote access, right? As many of us work from home more and more when the pandemic first happened, we saw you know companies that some adapted better than others. Some struggled with the ability to allow employees into the networks remotely. And even when we're largely coming back to the offices, everybody still has people that work remote for necessary reasons and need to an access system. So having the ability, for example, when you're accessing the VPN remotely, making sure that you have that protected with multi-factor authentication. And particularly important is the administrative access, right? Those individuals that are allowed and necessarily so to have access to essentially the command and control operational parts of the organization, those systems have to be protected by MFA because if they're not, should a bad guy get in through, you know, some open doorway, it no longer is just isolated to a particular silo, if you will, within the system, they're going to be able to maintain control over the entire network if they can get into the administrative access. Okay, thank you for that. So, so Carolyn, is it hard to set up MFA? What is MFA? Give us the literally the ABCs of MFA. Absolutely, Joan. So really, when you're talking about multi-factor authentication, you're talking about a multi-step account login process, right? That's the fundamental, really. And, you know, everybody on their world, they have, you know, some people say they get it in like a text message that allows them to log in, that gives them a code in order to log in. Some people, you know, whether or not they have like a Microsoft authenticator or a duo or something like a secondary step to authenticate that that is you who's going to be logging in. That's really what you want to be thinking about. So is it easy? Is it flipping a switch? No, not really, unfortunately, because it, it is that next step of the process where you need to have that secondary. You need to have, you know, your cell phone near you, or you need to have something where you have that login code in order to enter that in. And a lot of, and this actually goes to, you know, to Tim's point, which is, a lot, it's not necessarily something easy to deploy across all things, across all organizations, because sometimes, you know, like for instance, you know, in the educational systems is Chromebooks, is it easy to deploy multi-factor authentication on Chromebooks? The answer is no, it's not. What about those legacy, some of those older systems that are out there, like the construction and manufacturing industry? One of the single largest targets that we're seeing now is those kind of issues, those operational issues, right? Implementing multi-factor authentication on those is very difficult for those organizations and sometimes can't even be done, right? But knowing that as a potential avenue in which they could be a vulnerability, those are one of the first steps that you want to have with an organization is, you know, what are my vulnerabilities? And having a threshold level of multi-factor authentication is just that first step in making sure that your organization is protected. Okay, thank you for that. One last question for Tim on this topic, and then we're going to move on to the sure. next step. What about those small mom and pop organizations out there? Maybe a small agency, they're going to have limited resources, their IT expertise. What, what do they do? to try to get MFA on their systems well, immediately. I, again, there's resources available, right? And and we'll we'll share we'll share some of that information. We we've talked on many of these webinars about partnerships that we have with CISA for example, which is largely designed for critical infrastructure, but many people are shocked to realize that they are part of critical infrastructure and 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 many organizations are even if they're not, right? That they're that information is largely publicly available which gives some guidance but there's other resources available and I would 
encourage people to take example. We Microsoft published a, a study, which is a couple of years ago, but it's largely true. 99% of the threats that we see can be protected by MFA that's adequately deployed, right? So when you talk about return on investment, right? The, the ability, MFA is, you know, even if it's you know, a little complicated to do, very inexpensive to do, and, and the protection is tremendous. And, and I think when you look at it from that perspective, if you're still confused about how to do it appropriately, please reach out and get the right resources because it's critically important to do it. Okay, perfect. Moving on. Practice two is update your system. So Carolyn, we get messages all the time on our apps, on our phone or personal devices about software updates and upgrades. Talk about updating your systems, why it's important. What if you don't update and you're, and you're you know, what does that leave you vulnerable for? It's what the threat actors take advantage of. You know, you see those updates that are out there. It is not something like, you know, a phone update. It is something that, especially when you have an internal, I want to say, you know, a a person who's taking a look at your systems and what they want to do, these threat actors that are out there, they're looking to take advantage of all of those, right? They know that there is those vulnerabilities that are out there. And what they do is they try to find ways around it, or they take advantage of, of people, parties, companies that don't implement it quick enough. So they are looking out there for those, I I would say, don't make yourself one of those, you know, easy targets that are out there. So update quickly when those vulnerabilities, you see them come out, update your systems quickly. There's a reason behind it because they're, they're there to protect your systems to avoid these threat actors that are coming out there for you. Can you give us some real world examples, maybe Carolyn's of people who uh, have exploited, yeah. Uh, yeah. Microsoft Exchange, uh, about, you know, and Microsoft Exchange was a very large one. You'll see a lot of those vulnerabilities that's out there. You'll see information in the news about what's called zero day vulnerabilities. You know, those are ones in which an organization, like there wasn't a patch that was available, right? But we're more talking about the patches that are available, right? So you want to be, you want to try to be prepared for both. I know that sounds like a, a lot to put on as you an organization, but if you are waiting, you know, for instance, if you have a procedure or a policy in place within your organization that says, you know what, you patch in and, you know, we get those patches and we do it in 30 days. Well, I'll tell you, most of the threat actors know that that's something that's within organizations that are out there. So they take advantage of it within those first 30 days. So Microsoft Exchange, there's so many different ones that are out there. I mean, unfortunately, it's something that happens on a daily basis. They're the ones that you see out there, you know, like for instance, there's a lot of software vulnerabilities. You see a lot of third-party incidences now that are happening. And those are particularly the reasons why they're happening, unfortunately. Okay. And and Tim, talk about, you know, some people just don't get around to doing it within the 30 days. I, I know a lot of people wait till the 29th day. Uh, what are the risks, though, of, of running systems that are, you know, out of date? Well, I mean, it's exactly that, right? Particularly on software. If you're running software that's out of date, right, it's entirely possible that the, manuf- the, the manufacturer of that software may not come up with a patch because that, that system is discontinued. And even if they do come up with a patch, they may not push that patch out. So, so oftentimes, you know, when you're running when you're running systems that are up to date and software that's up to date, you're going to get that notification, right? You're going to actually sometimes have to almost deliberately ignore plenty of warnings that are coming your way, and we still see that, right? And yeah. and as Carolyn said, and as we say in our industry, it's it's zero day only at day zero. Once the patch is available, it's no longer zero day. 
And we see time and again, customers where there's a patch that exists, they have not done so. And, and sometimes it's not on the 29th day, it's on the 49th day and the 59th day. And the threat actors are, they're going after low hanging fruit fruit they can go out and scan networks and see whose vulnerabilities exist and where they exist and take advantage of them okay. if you're in their shoes why wouldn't you do it that way it's right. just easy uh, let's not make it easy for them okay great all right moving on this is practice three and this is the one as a non-tech person i don't really understand so i'm looking forward to your responses implement endpoint detection and response, or no, otherwise known as EDR. So Tim, what is endpoint detection and response, and how does it differ from other antiviral solutions? Sure, and, and I'll, gi- I'll give you at a, at, a, at a high level, right? If we think about antivirus, think about that as, as the wall that protects the system, right? And so it's keeping out things that it's designed to keep out, and does a good job at keeping things out that it's designed to keep out. Endpoint detection and response is a little differently. It, it's not designed to keep it, it to keep it out, but but it also is able to then see things that got through the wall and identify them, encapsulate them, that allow the organization to know that it exists. And it's really looking at behavioral issues as much as things it's programmed to keep out. Right. So so both are necessary layers. Think about end endpoint detection and response as as you know antivirus on steroids, for lack of a better term, because it allows you not just to keep out the things you want to keep out, but really a tool that's useful when things happen to get through. Okay, good. That was a good explanation. Thank you, Carolyn. So what types of threats uh, and attacks are EDR solutions really designed then uh, to detect or, or even respond to? Yeah, they're really designed. Yeah, and Joan, they're really designed to take a look and and look around for malware. Which, you know, I I think one of the things you know I always say that is coming out there right now. You hear a lot about artificial intelligence and, and machine learning and stuff like that, and the, the negative side of it. But one of the things that a lot of the great endpoint protection solutions are doing now, as a positive thing. They are learning from the different malware and they're evolving. So they're watching those kinds of things and they're evolving and making sure to destroy those attacks from a malware standpoint as well. So all the more important for if you're going to invest in something, because we talk a lot about practical tips, but if you're going to make the investment, we talk about one of the things that we're going to be talking about is backups. But the next thing that you want to be talking about is those endpoint protection solutions. Tim is exactly correct. It's the wall, right? You know, it's putting up that around your to protect your information that's out there and you're getting alerts that are out there i think one of the more difficult things that we're seeing a lot of clients deal with now is you're seeing an abundance of alerts but would you rather the abundance of alerts than letting the doors all the way open right okay good so i always go back to the smaller organizations right those out there that have you know maybe less than 20 employees what kind of solutions can smaller organizations, I mean, what what is out there in terms of EDR solutions? So maybe Tim, can you talk yeah, about so, that? So I, I would think this this one is probably is a little bit different than when we talked about MFA. This one may be harder for uh, a small organization just to go to say CISA or somewhere else and really understand what to do, right? It's, so if we think about EDR as the tool, right? It's a tool that can be deployed. You got to know how to use the tool. And so often what what is associated with EDR is what we would call MDR. So that is managed detection and response. So if we think about EDR as the tool, 
And MDR is a service that can run the tool for you. And mm-hmm. so uh, while it may cost more money, right, right, th- th- there's no sense really spending the money on EDR solution if you don't know how to operate it or don't have the bandwidth. I would encourage small organizations to think about, you know, do they have the ability to run an EDR solution? And if not, have an MDR, which is a service that can run the tool, because that's going to maximize your capability and it's going to maximize your ability for that tool to do all of the things it can do and all the machine learning and AI that goes into it is only as good as the human beings that are understanding what that means for them. And so that's that's a worthy investment for small companies that may not have the internal cybersecurity team to run those tools uh, on their own. Yeah. Okay. So excellent point. Sorry, Jonah. I just wanted, because that's one of the single largest things that we're seeing right now is that because of the abundance of alerts that are out there, people are getting, it's almost like multi-factor authentication fatigue, right? So then they're clicking and allowing people in. Same thing with endpoint protection solutions. They're doing the same thing where they're seeing all these alerts and then they're saying, you know what, we're allowing them in. All the more important for someone who's able to decipher what's real and what's not, what's important and what's not. Those are the kinds of things that if you were to talk about, you know, the most important things to invest money in, those are one of the top things. It would be, you know, your backup solutions and your endpoint protection MDR solutions. Okay, terrific. And we're dropping in the chat for everyone to know some links that you can learn a lot more about all these five steps, but this one in particular, because I know it can be confusing. All right, we're going on to practice four. And this is the one that I think is really low hanging fruit for anyone out there, which is to have an incident response plan. So we're going to talk about what's in an incident response plan. But one of the, I think the, the, the beauties of even talking about cyber insurance for a client, for a customer out there, is to talk about whether they have an incident response plan. And that is part of the conversation. I'm sure, Tim, you're going to talk about when we talk to our insureds about what they have in place currently uh, to protect against a cyber attack, do they have this incident response plan? So Tim, explain what it is, why it's so critically important, where someone should keep their incident response plan, because that's another thing to think about. And is there some sort of template out there for a generic one people should look for? Well, let's start with that. the second part of that question first. I'm sure we put up links which which will get you to some access to incident response plans. And 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 this is where right the, the incident response plan for a small company may necessarily look different than than a large company and those in between in certain industries will have different incident response plans or different people play different roles during the incident response plan. But but to get to to the first part of your question, you know, many of our customers don't have an incident response plan or they do but it's old and it's outdated. They don't know where it is, they haven't practiced it. So it's like anything else that we would have plans for, but here maybe importantly, it's you know, having a plan is a good first step. But understanding what that plan is, updating it, practicing it, uh, which which I can't stress enough. You know, when an incident happens, it's entirely likely. I think it's almost inevitable that the plan's not going to work exactly the way that you thought it might. You're going to learn from that. But having the plan and having prepared for it is in, also inevitably going to make the experience much better than it would have been if you had had no plan and you, and, and you hadn't prepared for it. And, you know, there's some basics, right? You, you can see in some of these, you know, there might be four basics or five or six, depending on which, if you go to NIST or 
MITRE and some other sources, but, you know, preparing first, right? Understanding, you know, we've seen, for example, the emails are compromised and the threat actors are seeing emails back and forth between the, between folks on what to do. Having a backup that is not the company email, preparing for it, uh, having part of detection as part of the incident response plan, plan containment, and then probably as importantly, having a post-event triage best practices learned. So, so there's some basic steps, but again, avail, you, avail yourselves of the resources that are out there for the plan that's right for your organization. Okay, great. Um, Carolyn, to you, I imagine you've been involved in developing these incident response plans for lots of people. Who should be at the table for that? Who should be involved in developing it for a, for a company? So usually what you want to talk about, you want to really bring your C-suite to the table, the real decision makers to the table. But one of the first things I always say to everybody when we're talking about an incident response plan is if you have one key takeaway, if you don't have the time to really sit down, my first thing I want to tell everybody is know the phone number to call. Use the resources that you have, right? Travelers has a 24-7 hotline. Mullen Coughlin has a 24-7 hotline in the event that any sort of incident occurs. Somebody will call you back in less than half an hour. <laughs> I will tell you within minutes to give you the resources that you need. But you know what? If you don't know the phone number or if it's this wonderful incident response plan that you develop is stuck up in the cloud, print it out. Please print it out. It's going backwards in technology, but print it out. That way you have that lucky phone number. You have your broker's phone number. You have the traveler's phone number. Print out that, you know, that 24-7 hotline that gives you the resources you need in order to get going in the right direction. Joan, one of the most, you know, critical pieces to this and who you bring to the table and talking about it and getting involved in those conversations goes exactly to what Tim was talking about earlier, which is how can you develop something? It is something that's usually developed per organization, but what you do is you think about, okay, let's just say in the event that my whole system goes down, what do I do first, right? Who do I call first? One of the other critical pieces, you know, you can call what, you know, what's my role as a breach coach? You know, I'm here to advise you as to any sort of state and federal and contractual obligations that you would have, guide you through the entire process. But really, I say to everybody, I'm here to take things off of your plate and put them onto mine. Let me let me be the person who's going to be guiding you through this entire process. But, you know, I always get the question, do I need to have Bitcoin? Do I, do I need a forensics company? Those are the kinds of questions where we have those answers to those questions for you. The answers are no. You know, through insurance, they've vetted all of those different wonderful forensics companies that do this day in and day out and have those 24-7 hotline numbers. You don't need to have those. You need that one phone number in order to get the process going. And I think that's critical to organizations. You know, it, it goes to the point of, you know, know the resources that you have. Talk to your brokers who are going to say to you, you know what, take advantage of all those proactive, wonderful services, including an incident response plan. You know, one of the things I always do is do what they're called meet the breach coach calls, right? I know this sounds a little salesmanship-y and it's not meant to be. It's, I always say, take away the mystery, look behind the Wizard of Oz you know, the, the 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 big curtain that's there and walk through what an actual incident would be to you and to your organization. Know the process. Know that in the event of a wire transfer fraud, 
time is of the essence to call right away because we can put you in touch with, and we have wonderful relationships with CISA, with the FBI, with Homeland Security, with Secret Service, who are there to help you try to get this money back from the banks. Take advantage of those particular services, because if you don't, you don't want to be costing more to your organization than need be. You're already going through enough. You're already a victim as itself. You don't want to be re-victimizing yourself. Yeah, I think it's really important, and Tim, I'll let you speak to this, that over the last almost 10 years, we we had travelers, and you certainly in your role, Carolyn, have developed these, these partnerships with government entities who have free resources complimentary resources. You're all taxpaying folks out there. You pay your taxes and these are available to you. So Tim, let's talk about this for a second. So you've developed an incident response plan. How effective uh, do you think that is when you actually need it? Other than having the number to call Carolyn or to call travelers or your broker, uh, have you seen incident response plans really guide a, a client and a customer through the whole process? Are they effective? Do they know oh, who to notify or it, it, is they're it tremendously effective? And and my comment before about the, you know, the, the, you know, the plan may not survive initial contact as the phrase may go. Right. And it probably won't, but that's not really the point, right? Let, let's take the other part of that. Do we see, have we seen uh, customers that have no incident response plan? And let's take that customer that not only has no incident response plan, but doesn't have cyber insurance, has never heard of Mullen Coglin wouldn't know what to do. And by the way, even if they decided that they, they might Google breach coach, well, their systems are down and they might have to do that on a private phone, right? So so when we see customers, and then less and less do we see this because it's part of our process to make sure customers that don't have incident response points do, but when we see customers that don't, uh, they are in a really, really bad way. And particularly those customers that might not have insurance and might not know how to get in touch with Mullen Coughlin. They're essentially on their own in what is a situation which where minutes and hours matter, right? So when you have that incident response plan, when you've practiced it, the number one thing is the anxiety factor is lowered. Your ability to then know what to do and to have practiced it in a people know what their role is it it makes them more effective in those roles because the the anxiety is so much less i mean this is a mission critical thing often happens over the weekends middle of the night right and you can imagine the stress levels and reducing the stress levels makes the process more effective and and if for no other reason other than that that's a good enough reason to have the incident response points in the first place yeah, Tim. And I think that that means that's so important on so many levels, right? Number one, you know, when you have, you know, such a high level of stress, and that could be wire transfer fraud, business email compromise, ransomware, whatever it may be, any type of incident, you need to be thinking about, number one, are you preserving any and all evidence when, you know, an incident occurs? Because organizations, you know, sometimes before they call, what they'll do, they'll wipe things clean. And what do you do? What happens when you wipe things clean? You're wiping away the evidence to see what actually happened. But we would walk you through all of that. The reasons why the importance behind calling right away. So we talked about wire transfer fraud, the you know preservation of evidence so we can see what you know how this happened, you know, especially with ransomware incidents you know, what, you know, what kind of information was taken from, you know, a particular system, you know, what these threat actors actually did within a system. But the other piece I always think about it is also the business aspect, the communications aspect. 
you send out an email into the oblivion. Yeah, everybody has this inclination. We live in a society where everybody is on emails, where you know, we're always on systems. But you know what? Memories fade, pieces of paper do not, right? Emails do not. So is it easier to be able to step away from the computer and you know, put your hands up and say, you know what, let's think about the communication that's going to go out the door instead of having to walk things back. Those are the critical pieces. That's where we all can help all of you. You know, and that first call, I always say that to everybody, the first call is at no cost to you. Always good to run ideas by people, run it by, you know, run it by travelers, run it by the forensics team, run it by a breach coach. Those are the kinds of things that's what we're gonna do is to here to help you. And all the more reason that you don't want to put yourself in a worse situation. And, and and I would add, and just again on the effectiveness of the plan, just having the plan and having go go through it. Think think about the event taking place. Do you want to be in a position where you actually might have to tell regulators, mm-hmm. right, depending on the industry, that we had no plan, we didn't think of that, or your customers know you had no plan, right? The the plan may not work exactly as you anticipated. But there is no excuse for not having the plan. And mm-hmm. and more and more, there's requirements to to notify various law enforcement regulatory bodies. And so the faster that you're able to comply with that and the more professionalism and expertise that you can bring to bear on that will, will not only reduce the actual event, but it's going to reduce the impact that that event has on your reputation and on your business how customers perceive you and how regulators perceive you. Absolutely, Tim. And I think one of the other things you mentioned, the regulators that are out there, I mentioned also the contractual obligations. We're seeing more and more organizations, especially contracts that have been entered into in the past two to three years that have an obligation to notify in the event of any sort of cyber incident and you don't want to be in breach of contract. So all the more important, you know, proactively to take a look at those contractual obligations, but also know what regulatory obligations that you're going to have and who you need to contact, because some of those obligations are 24 hours, 48 hours, but good to know. So then you're not violating them right away. Okay, very quickly on this, because we have to go to our fifth category. How often should an organization update their incident response plan? Is this an annual exercise or is it every five years? What do you advise clients, uh, Carolyn, on that one? How often? So I usually, uh, at a minimum, at least once a year, I, I usually prefer it you know, twice a year because things, unfortunately, in this landscape change very quickly. But just test it because you know what? People leave, right? People go on vacation, uh, make sure to have people's cell phone numbers, you know, out of band emails that Tim was talking about earlier. Those are the kinds of things that you're going to want to think about at least once to twice a year. Okay, very good. Uh, now we're going to move on. This is practice five, everyone. Regularly back up your data. So, Carolyn, uh, why should you be backing up your data? What does it mean by regularly backing this up? Well, you know what? Think about to yourself. In the you want to give yourself options in the event of anything happening, you know. So what, what you know what is backing up your data meaning? So in the event that you know your systems go down, your you know everything gets encrypted, you want to be able to take a look into the stuff you put in the system yesterday. Um, so you want to if you have invested and in, we talked about really good investments, endpoint protection solutions are one of them. Backups are the critical one. I would put that as like a number one. You know, if you want to invest in really good backups, because these threat actors, what do they want to do? Their ultimate goal, most of the time, I mean, some of it's you know they they're thinking about intellectual property, but the other piece to it is money. So what do they? What do you think that they're going to do and go for first? 
They're going to go for your backup spurts. They're going to try to wipe your backups clean because they want to leave you in a position where you're going to have no choice but to pay them. So if you invest in good backups, backups that are separated, backups that are you know secure and separated from your organization, one that was from yesterday, you know, one of the single largest costs that we're seeing right now are business interruption costs, you know, not being able to get back up and running um, from your, you know, getting your options in terms of the data itself, getting those back up. You just want to be in the best position in order to make sure that you wouldn't have to make, you know, any sort of payment to these threat actors. Okay, good. So, so Tim, talk to us about what types of data should be backed up on a regular basis. Well, certainly, as Carolyn said, right, the, the data that's changed, right, doing a full backup of all your data and systems is critical, but but really, it's also backing up the data and systems that have changed since the last time you did a full backup. And so so part of that is an assessment that's necessary. And really, it really, it's it's maybe easy to say everything, but it's that the, the, that those data and, and systems that are necessary for the core mission of the organization to, to, to run their business. And just to put that into some perspective and to maybe go back in time a little bit, when when the ransomware threat kind of first came upon us in the cyber insurance industry, ransom demands were three, four hundred dollars. And the reason that they were so small is because the threat actors weren't into the backups. And so somebody would have this threat on their and, and might not even really care because their business wasn't disrupted. As the threat actors got more sophisticated and they were able to encrypt the backups. And that's when we saw ransom demands go from three, four hundred dollars to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and millions of dollars. You know, over the last year or so, or a couple of years, we've seen a lot of really good due diligence about backups, backups being better. And despite the threat actor community, ha- uh, you know, increasingly um, deploying ransomware, some of the actual the um, the the frequency in which customers have to pay ransom is down the amount of disruption in terms of time is down and ultimately the 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 amount of ransom is down for for many of our customers too because they've gotten better at backing up their systems so understand what that is mission critical and that may be different for for each organization but your databases your active directory and domains are are the types of things that you want to be thinking about and then do it okay so so now we understand why it's so important to back up. So Carolyn, talk to us about how organizations go about doing it. Is there a magic to it? Is it is it part of the system that they're, is again, is this a, a yearly thing? Is it daily? Is it hourly? When you talk about a backup? Sure. It's usually, it really depends on the organization and the amount of data that they have incoming every day, right? You know, because it's all about the change from day, you know, day zero to day one to day two, right? But it usually is a separate and apart system. Now, the best systems, I hate to say it, have multiple backups, you know, because if one backup goes down, you need to have another backup just in case. One that's separate and apart, meaning that, you know, if you're Having a particular, like an error gapped one is one that in which, you know, you're making sure that your organization is, you know, kind of, I want to say if your organization gets encrypted, then the secondary, you know, it doesn't go directly to your backups and then the encryption goes directly to your backups, right? You want to have something that's separate and apart. So it is a separate system, Joan, but it is one in which that you want to have those regular backups. You know, for instance, if it's something where you're getting a client or customer input every day, all the more reason that you would need a daily one versus, for instance, if it's something where if it's, you know, you're not getting that much data, you know, per day, um, you know, and you could do it monthly, then that's something that an organization would need to decide. 
Okay, great. Um, we're going to get to your questions now because there's a whole lot coming in through the Q&A feature here. So first one is uh, coming in from Carrie Wakely. Carrie asked, and I think this is probably for you, Tim, can you clarify the differences and gaps between a crime policy and a cyber policy? Sure. And there may be less gaps than potential overlaps. And, and this may be one area where that's probably a good thing as opposed to a bad thing. But, but if we think about a crime policy, generally speaking, as an insurance policy that's going to protect and cover expenses related to companies that have money stolen, and there's lots of ways that have nothing to do with cyber or systems that money can be stolen, whether it's a petty cash drawer, whether it's inventory leaving, whether it's you know embezzlement in some other forms of way, uh, fraudulent checks, right? But that kind of thing can happen and it has nothing to do with cyber and crime policies can deal with some, some of those things that way. But there is some overlap because more and more people use technology to steal money and not just steal money, not just in the extortion stuff that we've been spending uh, a lot of time talking about, but what we might call uh, computer fraud. So so actually manipulating the keys, if you will, or the inputs so that uh, money is wired out of an organization or what we might call funds transfer fraud, which is a coverage that can exist in both cyber and crime policies, where a threat actor has enough information to essentially pretend to be you. Maybe they'll get that information through through a hack and they go to your bank and they have enough credentials to be able to get access to the bank fund and move money out. And so a good cyber insurance product may protect against all of those things, and it may overlap with a crime policy. I think it's a good strategy to have those those coverages with one insurer so you can see where those overlaps and the gaps are more easily. But it's important to have both because both do, while they do some overlap, they do different things too. Okay. Um, thank you, Tim. Another question coming in from Mark Conley. Mark? Good to have you on the program today. Are backup programs getting smart enough to identify a potential threat from getting back up? So Carolyn, how about to you? So um, most of the times I will tell you, it really depends on what you have in terms of your protections to your backup systems. You know, you know, we were talking about those endpoint protections and those error gaps associated with it, because if you if you have a backup that's co that's completely connected to your systems, and your systems get infected with any sort of malware, it could go right through to your backups, right? And that's a reason, one of the attack vectors that, you know, the threat actors count on. So a lot of, there's a lot of options that are out there. So when you're looking into a good backup system, make sure to ask those questions about whether or not it could be air gapped or even just ones that it could be separate and apart where you can even have it as separate data center. Um, so then it would be separate to your system. That's something that, you know, I know people talk about, get, you know, going up into the cloud and, and having on a daily or even just every other day basis. Okay. Follow up from Mark Conley. He's got a couple today. What percentage of ransom claims result in a ransom being paid? So I know, Carolyn, uh, in some of our live sessions, you talk about kind of the pre-pandemic ransom demands and maybe post-pandemic, how that's changed. What is the average ransomware demand? As Tim talked about the small dollars when this was starting, now these are very big dollars, right, that you're seeing. So give us a sense, a peek behind the scenes of what's happening at your law firm with regard to ransomware, how much, what percent are being paid, who makes that decision? Is it the insured? Are you coaching them on whether they should pay the ransom or not? Is the insurer have a view on that? Who makes that decision? Uh, so I'm going to go to Carolyn first about what they're seeing, and then Tim talk about the process of deciding on ransomware. 
Sure. And it, it's an excellent question, right? So we're we're seeing probably on averages in terms of demands about 2 million, but the payouts are really much significantly lower because you, and when I say that, we're talking about like 180,000 just on, on really on median, you know, in terms of taking a look at that on, you know, an average. Now, obviously there's some that are going to skew upwards and lower, you know, uh, you know, upwards and lower, right? You know, based on incidences. But, you know, in terms of actual people paying them, we're seeing maybe anywhere between 15 and 18 percent, definitely under that 20 percent marker of actual people paying these threat actors. Now, but really who it ultimately is the decision maker is the business themselves. I take a look at it from both perspectives, right? You know, because really you want to be thinking about it. You know, no one ever wants to make a payment to a threat actor, right? You know, no one ever wants to have that. That's the reason why we talk about these five things, right? You want to be in a best position not to have to make payments to these threat actors. That's the reason why we're here to talk about all these things. But one of the things and one of the increases that we are seeing are individuals who are making payment and the reasons why they're making payment. It's, you know, we're still seeing that highest number being to get that key because the backups themselves are infected. But we're still seeing that those lower numbers in terms of people actually making payment. But you you do that balance of, you know, hey, look, you know, the threat actor um, there's, you know, it, it's a criminal, right? So you never know whether or not, you know, they're going to sell the information to the buddy down the street. They don't know whether or not it's going to be a situation, you know, hey, look, you know, they give it to somebody else or they post it. You know, they're, it they're criminals. So you don't know what they're actually going to be doing with the data. And it doesn't negate your obligation to notify the individuals if there's sensitive information that was taken. But but you need to think about it from a business perspective. Um, you know, is it going to cost me more to get back up and running? Is it going to be a situation where, you know, it's, is it going to be a very big detrimental harm to my business? That's all the conversations we have from moment one with the business. And I'm sure, Tim, I know you guys have had that conversation as well, right? Sure. Yeah. And I, th- I think the point you made is that we don't make the decision for the customers. We we allow them to make it. Obviously, we 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 expect and hope that they take into consideration the expert counsel of, of Mullen Coughlin or other breach coaches. The breach coaches don't work for us. They work for the customer. And so if the customer makes a decision to pay, we'll be there. If they make a decision not to pay, we'll be there. And that's an individual decision for that customer. But almost always our interests are mutual aligned. No one wants to pay. And when it's paid, it's it's really very much the last resort, and it's and it's what is necessary for that particular event. Exactly. The only exception would be is whether or not that they be a sanctioned entity, whether or not that they would be on the OFAC list, the Office of Foreign Assets Control list. That would ever be a reason not to, you know, that you absolutely cannot, you know, pay, and that would be a reason why we would say absolutely not. You know, that would be something that we would never counsel us to. Okay, Carolyn, quickly, do you have a average payout? I mean, when they do, when clients do pay ransomware, what, where is that number today? Tim mentioned hundreds of dollars when this all started, but where are we at today? Yeah, so probably on average right now, it's about the, anywhere between the 150 to 180,000 range um, is really the payouts that we're seeing. Uh, we are seeing definitely an increase in the demands up to that $2.2 million on, on a median. Um, but then, if, uh, of course, you just always have those outliers, unfortunately. Yeah, Okay. Um, Tim, this question is coming in from Adam Andler at MJ Insurance, and uh, he's asking you, what does the future hold for cyber insurance underwriting? So what are some of the challenges and opportunities kind of in today's marketplace? Because obviously, this has been an evolution, right? We didn't have cyber insurance 50 years ago, 20 years ago. So what what are you seeing now? 
you're our chief underwriting officer for cyber at the company. And it's a it's a big challenge, right? In in today's marketplace. Yeah, it's a huge challenge. It's a great question. And 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 it's an ever evolving and necessarily ever evolving process. And 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 we, you know, if a phrase sometimes, you know, technology and threat actors move at a different pace than insurance does. So that's so from an insurance underwriting. Really, to stay on top of it, we got to move at a different pace than 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 many other coverage lines, um, which are also evolving necessarily, of course. But I think probably the biggest change that we've seen, you know, a lot of the threat actors, we kind of touched on this, right? They're able to scan networks and look at vulnerabilities, and they're often exploiting a vulnerability and oftentimes doing it without knowing what who that customer actually is. They don't know who the customer is until they've exploited the vulnerability and they're inside the network in many cases. Right. So so what we're doing and uh, is to do some of that scanning ourselves. We're understanding where those vulnerabilities are. So we certainly we're getting information from our customers in terms of an application and what I'll say is traditional underwriting. But more and more, we're relying on third party data for us to understand what vulnerabilities our customers have. Use that as part of our underwriting. Sure. Maybe more importantly, uh, or certainly more importantly, be able to reach out to a customer and say, hey, we see something on your network that maybe you're unaware of. Here's what it is. Here's an issue. Here's access to resources that can help you remediate that vulnerability. That helps them uh, not have the claim, which obviously helps us financially. And it's really, you know, to borrow a phrase, a win-win for everybody. Wonderful. Okay. Last question here coming in from Heidi Springer. Uh, and there's a couple of questions uh, on this. VPN, you all did not mention VPN once. Uh, for remote workers, is it necessary to have VPN in today's world? Yeah, and I, I think actually Tim did mention the virtual private network, otherwise it is VPN as part of the uh, multi-factor authentication. One of the things that you want to have as a threshold, but absolutely, it, it's something that you want to have. It, it's again, talking about walls that you put up before, you know, before your remote desktop protocols, things along the lines of that nature, just thinking about how you funnel people to get into your organization, um, all the more critical to have, you know, multi-factor on those particular um, uh, for VPN. Okay, great. Um, listen, the hour has just flown by. I want to thank you so much, Tim and Carolyn, a wealth of knowledge. Thanks again for joining me as always on Wednesdays. All right, there you have it. I love getting the chance to chat with Tim and Carolyn. And thank you for tuning in to the Travelers Institute Risk and Resilience Podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our cyber readiness hub we discussed on today's episode and all of our Travelers Institute cybersecurity resources. You can sign up for our mailing list. We send updates on our upcoming podcasts, webinars, in-person events, and much more. I'd also love to hear what you thought about today's episode and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. So you can shoot me an email at institute at travelers.com or follow me on LinkedIn and send me a message there as well. Thanks again for tuning in.